Uh, let's continue considering the book of Ruth. Uh, we're in chapter 1. And so uh, I want to begin with a question this morning. Is God sovereign and good all the time, even in the bad circumstances that may occur in our lives? Think about this. Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, they, they leave Bethlehem their hometown because they're hungry, because of a famine. And they emigrate and settle an enemy nation of Moab. And no doubt they had hoped for a better life going to Moab. But while there, what happens? Elimelech dies, right? And then the two sons, Malon and Kilion, they marry Moabite women. But shortly thereafter, they die. And, and they die without leaving descendants. So here's the book of Ruth. All right, beginning with Naomi experiencing hunger, bereavement, and apparent hopelessness. But then, as we rem- you may remember from last week, in verse 6, the grace and the kindness of God shows up as God undoes the famine and b- provides bread, food. And that kindness and that grace persuades Naomi to begin her return journey to Bethlehem, 50 miles away. Look, and I wonder... I wonder, as she's returning, she's walking 50 miles. She's got a long journey ahead of her to think and to reflect. What did her faith and her commitment to God look like in those moments? Look, when you suffer loss and affliction and you experience all kinds of hardship, what does that do to your faith, honestly? What does that do to your commitment to the Lord? What does that do to your view of God? Is he still sovereign and good? With that in mind, what I want to do is, as we look at the rest of this chapter 1 of Ruth, consider two things. The painful honesty of faith in the life of Naomi, and also the surprising commitment of faith in Ruth. So first of all, the painful honesty of faith. We pick up the story in verse 7. And Naomi, in the company of her daughters-in-law, are on the road back to Bethlehem. But somewhere between Moab and Bethlehem, Naomi stops, and she attempts to persuade her daughters-in-law to return to Moab. And so in verse 8, it's recorded that Naomi says, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. And in verse 10, what we see there is their refusal. No, we will return with you to your people. To which Naomi responds in verses 11 to 13 with a brutally logical uh, argument. And let me summarize it like this. You heard it read, but let me summarize it like this. And in essence, she is saying, why are you going to come back? Why are you going to go to Bethlehem with me? If even in the farthest stretch of one's imagination, I, an old lady, could, could have a husband tonight, right? And get pregnant tonight and have children tonight. All right, would you wait till they grew up so you could marry them? Don't you see how foolish it is? My girls, no, no. If you came with me, I can't guarantee anything but destitution and loneliness. No, please go back to Moab. You're both still young. Go find a man to marry and get a future. But then she adds in verse 13. No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She acknowledges that the the death of Elimelech, her husband, and of her two sons is ultimately due to the hand of God. And it seems as if she's saying something like this. Girls, distance yourselves 
from me. Look at the bitter things that God has brought to my life. Go, return, lest your association with me will grieve you all the more. Now, let's ask this question. Is Naomi speaking like this because she's lost her faith in God? Telling these girls to go back to their gods? You know, go back to Moab? Has the pain of suffering, loss, and affliction caused her to be angry, to be resentful toward God? And we all know that this is a reality in the lives of people, right? That people in the face of affliction can get angry and upset and resentful. But is that what's happening with Naomi? I don't think so. See, through her words... She's exhibiting what faith looks like in the life of a believer when that believer is hurting, when that believer is experiencing hardship that they don't understand. See, authentic faith in the valley of sorrow doesn't turn its back on God, doesn't give God the silent treatment, but neither does it sweep away those hard questions that surface, or neither does it you know, suppress the painful emotions with a stiff upper lip. No, it doesn't pretend that all feels well. It doesn't feel well. And honesty, this honest faith, doesn't deny that God is sovereign even over personal misfortunes. See, when she says, it's bitter to me that God's hand is against me, it's not an indication of damaged or resentful faith, but I think it's an indication of honest faith. My dear friends, honest faith in the midst of affliction, is really hard for religious people like you and me. We've learned to put on plastic smiles. And so, because she is exhibiting honest faith, her heart is inclined to face the reality of the sovereignty of God and the reality of her pain, both of them together, so that in verses 20 and 21, she's back in Bethlehem, and she's speaking to the women who greet her there, and they wonder, is this Naomi? What does she say? She says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter. See, I don't think she's saying that she's resentful or embittered in herself, although that's a possible interpretation. Rather, I think that she's recognizing that her experiences in life have been bitter and that these bitter experiences come from the hand of the Almighty. The Almighty, Shaddai, in verse 21 makes it very clear. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. See, in her theology of God, in her theology of suffering, God is not absent. He hasn't abdicated his sovereign rule. He's still actively ruling, whether in circumstances that are pleasant or bitter. Look, if you are not able to face this God in your affliction with this kind of honesty, what do you do? What do you do, my dear friends? I know what some people do. I was listening to this pastor theologian, Ralph Davis, and He was talking about a pastor friend of his and they were having a discussion about suffering and the sovereignty of God. And and this pastor friend of his is much older, but when he was younger, he was a military chaplain in World War II. And and this this pastor friend said, look, if I had been killed in action and my wife received the news of my death, I would hope that she would not have said something like this. And, you know, the Lord did this. The Lord permitted this. The Lord allowed this. I hope she would not have said something like that, but rather that it just happened. It just happened. To which Davis responded, that's nice and tidy. If it's good news, God is responsible. 
But if it's bad news, God is off the hook. God is not involved in tragedy. It's just chance. And then David says something I think is striking. He says this. Revelation 21.4 doesn't say that chance will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It says that the God who makes them cry those tears, he's the only one that can wipe away those tears. Is it any comfort, my dear friend? Is it any benefit to your faith to to think that you can turn a corner of life and God isn't there, that somehow he has stopped being sovereign? Is there any painful detail of your life that's outside of the providential control of our God? No, there isn't. And Naomi understands that. You see, she's facing the hard truth. She's dealing with this God who is in every detail, whether they're pleasant or bitter. But notice, that's not the only thing that's in her heart. That's not the only thought she has about God. Because if you go back to verses 8 and 9, when she's talking with Orpah and Ruth, She says to them, and this is something of a prayer for her. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Notice her choice of words. Are these the words of a woman who has denied God, who is angry with God? She says, you know, may the Lord. She's she's using, you see the capital L-O-R-D. She's using the covenant name of God. All right, And she says, may he deal kindly with you. And that word kindly, we've come across it before. It's the word that's translated in other places, steadfast love. It's the word in Hebrew, chesed. It's what's at the heart of this covenant relationship between God and his people. As one theologian says, it's, it combines the warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. It is his pledged, committed, steadfast, unbreakable, loyal, super glue love of God for his people. She might be complaining about God's ways with her, that they hurt and they're bitter, but she's dealing with him who has committed himself to her. She's bowing beneath the hand of this God who's committed himself to her in chesed. I can't help what this image that comes into my mind is when my children were young and they're hurting. Maybe they fell down and they scratched themselves. They cut themselves and I pick them up and I'm holding them in my hands and they're crying and they're complaining of the pain, but I'm holding them and I'm telling them it's going to be okay. And I just imagine Naomi, she's voicing these bitter experiences, but she's doing so sitting in the lap of her God who has pledged faithfulness to her, this God who cannot lie, this God who cannot deny himself. He has pledged to her his faithfulness, his love, his loyalty, he, his commitment. That's why she can say, Oh, Father, it hurts, it's bitter, but I know you're sovereign. And one day, and we know the rest of the story, she can say, You're sovereign and good. Does your faith do that? When you hurt, do you face him who has committed himself to you in this covenant love? If, if not, I just don't know how you endure, how do you keep from depression, how do you keep from forsaking God unless you hold on to this, to this one who's holding on to you. I've shared this with you last summer, but I think it bears repeating about this Christian woman by the name of Paulette 
about 11 years ago, her young daughter was killed in a car accident. And you can imagine, and she tells her testimony, and she felt so betrayed by God, angry, depressed, grieving desperately. And her pastor would send her scripture passages. But it wasn't until he sent her a quote from John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ, that she was enabled to face God with honesty and hope. This is what Stott wrote. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? In my imagination, I have turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dried and horribly thirsty, plunging God-forsaken darkness. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered a world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. And see, and when Paulette heard this and read this, she realized that she could still believe in a God if he wasn't immune to pain. This God, He understands pain. He understands adversity and human suffering because he sent his son to die, his son to be killed, his son to suffer affliction. He's the man of sorrows. She, Paulette goes on to say, she didn't understand why God allowed the death of her daughter. See, she's not denying the sovereignty of God, but she was able to move forward in faith because she knows She could say this, God knows my pain. He's acquainted with my grief. He cries with me. Brothers and sisters, dear friends, if God in his providence has brought you hardship, affliction, pain, sorrow, or whatever kind to your life, I would urge you, do not turn your back on God. Don't let your heart be filled with resentment toward him. But humbly, Honestly, face him. Face him in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Because in Christ Jesus crucified, you see one who's not indifferent to your anguish. He's acquainted with your affliction and anguish. In Jesus Christ, who bore our sin and judgment that we deserve, God is telling you and me who are united to Jesus that he has made an unbreakable pledge to love you, to show you chesed. Every second of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year of your life, there will never be a moment of your life where God is not displaying his chesed to you. That's what you hold on to. Otherwise, how in the world do you press on? And if you have this kind of faith in the midst of the affliction and sorrow, you and I have to understand this. It is the gift of God. That doesn't surge from within us naturally. It is the work of God's grace and His Spirit in us. And so in Naomi, we see the painful honesty of faith But as the story unfolds, we see the surprising commitment of faith in Ruth. At Naomi's urging, Orpah is convinced to go back to Moab, but not so Ruth. In verse 14, the text tells us that she clung to her. And that word clung describes a deep personal commitment, like the commitment that Adam had in cleaving to his wife Eve. Same verb. 
So when in verse 15, Naomi urges Ruth to return to Moab, Ruth responds with that beautiful, loving commitment that we know so well and is often used in weddings, right? In verses 16 and 17. But are her words simply an affectionate commitment to Naomi? No, I don't think so. No. Let me summarize it like this. It's as if she's saying, Naomi, stop. Stop trying to convince me to leave you. I am not going to leave you. Don't you understand, Naomi? I have come to trust in Yahweh. I have come to trust in your God. I've been converted. So don't ask me to leave you. And and I think this is confirmed because if you go to chapter 2, verse 12, we see that Boaz says about Ruth, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And that expression, we've looked at it before, is a common Old Testament expression for trusting in this covenant Lord who protects his people. So, do you find this commitment of faith on behalf of of Ruth, do you find it surprising? I do. How did she learn of this God? Well, you could say, well, she learned it from her husband before he died, or most likely she learned of this God from Naomi. So so what did she hear from Naomi? Well, we don't know. What did she see in Naomi? Well, we know what she saw. She saw anguish and affliction. So one could argue that she was persuaded by the painful faith of Naomi, so much so there was such evangelical attraction from her painful faith in Yahweh, that she would say, I want to entrust my life to this God. I mean, that's simply astounding. So how did she come to have such faith? Well, we have to go forward, you know, to the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians that this saving faith is what? Is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. So here in the midst of this affliction and bereavement, here's God giving this gift of faith to this woman. See, there's no other way to explain this kind of commitment of faith. Uh, You know, when you hear her say, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Do you see the cost implied in this commitment? Ruth is going to follow Naomi and Yahweh. Not because she's going to end up receiving health, wealth, and prosperity. No, most likely, there's a cost to her. She's going to have to suffer poverty. And going to Bethlehem, there's a cost to her. Why? She's going to leave her comfortable hometown. She's going to leave her siblings, if she has siblings, or her family, her parents. There's a cost to her. See, if faith is not a gift of the grace of God, how else do you explain that she made a personal commitment to Yahweh? She says, your God shall be my God, my God. She's forsaking Chemosh, the Moabite God, the ones that the Moabites worshipped. Do you know how hard it is to forsake sin? You know how hard it is to forsake idolatry? You know she didn't do this on her own. This was the work of God's grace and the work of God's spirit in her. And so it is the kindness of God that brought her to have this personal relationship with Yahweh. And what did she bring to that personal relationship? What did she bring? Nothing. Nada. Nothing at all. She brought no obedience. She brought no religious religious observance. No, it was all of grace. See, saving faith is coming to God with empty hands to receive all that we need 
all the forgiveness, the new life, the righteousness, the provisions, all from our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, is this the kind of faith that you have? See, if faith is not a divine gift, how do you explain that she also commits herself to the people of God as well? To God's people. She says, your people shall be my people. You know, the Israelites were enemies of the Moabite people. And now she's saying, no, that the Israelites, they're going to be mi gente, mi pueblo. They're going to be my people. Right? And so you see this genuine saving faith draws us into an independent, interdependent relationship with other people in the body of Christ. And I think that Ruth knew this wasn't going to be easy. I mean, she's a foreigner. She's an outsider. And she's going to come into a community, you know, that viewed outsiders and Gentiles with disdain. There's a commentator by the name of uh, Ian Dugan, and he said it like this. There, are, there was nothing kosher about Ruth. She'd be as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. You know, I think he's absolutely right. But this is what commitment to God entails. Relationship with people who are, and we've talked about this before, simultaneously saints and sinners. Ham sandwiches and kosher hot dogs. Delightful at times and difficult at times. That's the reality. Yet flawed as we are, as people in the church of Jesus Christ, if the Lord is our God, then His people must be our people. See, this goodness and the grace of God is given Uh, given to this woman in the midst of all this affliction and bereavement. This is just amazing, so amazing that she would make this this commitment in which she says, I will persevere. She says, where you die, I will die, and there will I be married. She was committing herself for life. Not even just until Naomi's death, but beyond that, even in her own death. But even in her own death, she understood she would be united to God. And so serious was her commitment that she made a vow. May the Lord do so to me and make and more also if anything but death parts me from you. It's almost as like if she's making some kind of gesture to Naomi. Maybe like this. You know? If I don't keep my commitment, may God's wrath fall upon me and kill me. Here is the goodness and the grace of God in the midst of grief. Oh, how we long to see that and experience that. But I want you to see what's happening in the story. God has been sovereignly working together all things for good. He's taken the famine. He's taken their decision to go to Moab. He's taken the sons marrying these Moabite women. He's taken the, the men, these sons dying, the provision of bread. He's taking all these strands, all these things, working to them together for good. For what purpose? For the salvation of this woman, Ruth, whom he knew from before the foundation of the world. So maybe later on, if anybody ever asks Naomi, So, Naomi, why was God inflicting all this bitter suffering in your life? And Naomi could rightly respond, for Ruth, for her salvation. We know there's more to the story, and we'll get to that in the weeks ahead. But at the very least, we can say that. So, we tend to think, brothers and sisters, uh, about ourselves 
when we're in the midst of affliction, right? Bad things are happening to us and we ask, Lord, can you take these bad things away from me? Lord, when is this going to end? Lord, what are the lessons you want to teach me? Because I want to learn those lessons quickly because I want this lesson to be over. Those are the kind of things that we usually think. We, We think about ourselves. But what if, what if your suffering is not just about you? What if the affliction isn't just about you? What if from the ashes of your grief, what if in, from the suffering, the trial, the hardships that you're undergoing today, God will raise up new life for another person tomorrow? What if it's not just about you? I think about those five missionary men uh, who went to the jungles of Ecuador in the 1950s to evangelize the Aka Indians. Five Wheaton College graduates missionaries. They had made contact with the Aka Indians. Some of you may know the story because of the movie End of the Spear. And uh, so after making initial contact, without warning, uh, two days later, uh, these men are attacked by the Aka Indians who spear them to death. And among them was Jim Elliott, Nate Saint. Can you imagine the grief and the sorrow that their families experienced and the whole evangelical community? But what you need to know is that later on, Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, and Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, they went to live in the jungles of Ecuador to bring the gospel to this tribe. It was five years after that deadly incident that the first Aka Indian came to faith in Jesus Christ. And soon thereafter, reports have come in that there are 75 people from that tribe that have come to faith in Jesus, and even some of those included the people who killed those five missionaries. Your grief today may indeed be used of God in the life, in the salvation of others tomorrow. Because see, maybe, maybe all that's happening to you is not ultimately about you. It's hard for us to get our heads around that. Is it not true? But if there is a sovereign God who is at the same time good, these things, if there isn't, these things don't and can't happen. But the God with whom we have to do, the God with the one that we are trusting in, the one who's given us his gift of faith, the one who has committed himself to us, he declares to us, to you and to me, in the midst of our affliction, he is both sovereign and good. My dear friends, can you end this? Can you, do you know how this ends? If I say, God is good, how do you respond? All the time. God is good all the time, even when the circumstances are bad. That's why. My pastor friend who wrote this week on his Facebook post about losing his father last week and his mother this week to COVID-19. That's why he could write, God is in absolute control. He is absolutely good. And he is mercifully and graciously good. He is sovereign and good. He is chesed good all the time. May you rest. Whatever your grief, whatever your sorrow, may God grant you the grace to rest and to face Him who has faced you and will never forsake you. Let's pray.